3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. We are the first live show of the day. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. A wonderful day. My name is Will, and I'm sitting across from... Idwin. Hello, Idwin. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. I'm good, Will. It was freezing cold getting here, but Mm. I'm good. I'm in the warm studio. It's okay. It's been a cool start to this Wednesday, the 11th of July. Um, And... Uh, a couple of things happening around this this region we call Melbourne slash Narm. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what was it? There was a there was a march just this past weekend. March this weekend. Yeah. Um, uh, there's an ongoing ongoing celebrations for NADOC Week that's happening. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. And there's a few marches coming up which mm-hmm. we might cover today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of stuff happening in Melbourne. Also, I forgot to mention that I played Mysterium yesterday, and it was fantastic. <laughs> it's a board fantastic, game. It's fantastic. a lot of fun. Um, yeah, how's your week been? Uh, I've been playing, uh, speaking of board games, uh, huh? The Barbarians of Lemuria, oh. which is a really old um, kind of D&D role-play game. Right. It's extraordinarily fun. It's based off Conan the Barbarian. Wow. So <laughs> you okay. can play one race, humans, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. A lot nice. of caving in heads, though. So sure, sure, sure. A little bit, can <laughs> a little we bit do, basic. Can we do a board game show at some point in the uh, future? That would be astounding. Just talk that about like, so much fun. board game design or something. Yeah, no, gonna, definitely. Listeners at home, we're going to be working on this episode <laughs> as soon as we switch off today. It's going to be an ongoing project yeah. we'll dedicate our yes. time to. Um, actually, if there are any projects that you um, think that we should pay attention to, I mm. would love to hear from from you folks. We always enjoy hearing from you folks when mm. you call in. Um, our phone number is 94198377. That's 94198377. And we take calls, not on the show live, because we haven't got the training, but um, but we do pass on messages if people leave them here at, um, yeah. at the station. And um, Definitely. You can also SMS your messages are on 0488930855. So that's 0488 930855. And why do we mention this? <laughs> and why do we mention this? We also mention this because uh, you might have known a little while ago we had something called the Radiothon. Radiothon. Yeah, Radiothon, where we were raising money for the station because obviously this is all based on kind of volunteers and a mm. very skeleton um, workforce. Mm. And yeah, we, we, we self-fund ourselves. We own this building, but mm. it takes a lot of money to run for the volunteers. So question, Ivan. Yeah? Did we smash $200,000? Well, we are... Almost there. We're close. No, no, uh, we did. We made it <laughs> over the two hundred thousand dollars benchmark. Oh, wait, did we? Two hundred twelve thousand four hundred and eighty-six dollars. Oh, look at that. That's didn't amazing. That's gone up to... since last time I checked, mm, which mm. is fantastic. We didn't quite make it to our target of two hundred fifty thousand, but there's there's still time. Well, I mean, there's still time because still time. you're, you you're still here. It. We're still here. Yeah. Um, We're still going, and yeah. we will be for a while longer. We just need another $37,514 um, to make totally our target get. for the year, which I think we can get <laughs> if you happen to have a couple of dollars kicking around and you haven't mm. donated yet. You know, Radiothon has ended, sure, mm. but 
you're going to still put your hand in your pocket and support independent radio and radical radio, you know, of the definitely. kind that's not not really found anywhere else in Melbourne in terms of radio. So yeah, definitely, you know. and you can feel free to donate in any way you want. So you can do it mm. online. Has been very popular, but mm. we've also received checks in the mail. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people have come into our station. So if you mm-hmm. feel like coming into our station in yeah. Fitzroy, we'd love to see you. Um, yeah, so there's lots of different ways you can yeah. go about it, and we, from five dollars to fifty to whatever you can afford. Mm-hmm. We appreciate everything we can um, get for the station, Absolutely. for the volunteers, and for the free yeah. radio, really. And full respect to PBS and, um, and to Triple R, who are also great stations. But, mm. um, yeah, 3CR is unique. It's 3CR is beautiful. Pretty special. <laughs> Um, so what do we what do we have coming up for the show yes. today? We've got a couple of things. We've got a few things coming up. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be hearing Songs of Satire. What are you talking about? All right. There? Songs of Satire. We're taking it on a bit of a spin today, and we're going to mm-hmm. talk about uh, a bit more of a youth issue today huh? with youth underemployment and unemployment. So mm-hmm. we've got a nice Shed Rock song uh, by the Good Boys uh, coming up called Living Below the Poverty Line. So that'll be fun. That's right. And then at around 7.30, we'll be hearing from a... Uh, from not from the speech itself, but from the question time after the speech given by Stan Grant, who some of the some of you may know as a journalist from SBS. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done a whole lot of other stuff as well, but we'll we'll get to that later. But um, um, so it's a speech that Stan Grant gave um, at the Communities in Control event that happened earlier this year. Yeah, and uh, he's speaking to a uh, a woman who's asked a question in the audience about. Um, Indigenous identity and um, conversations that can happen within the within Aboriginal communities and conversations you can't really have with non-Indigenous people. And I think that's it's just a really interesting thing to hear. We might not play much of the speech itself because he's quite a strong uh, advocate for liberalism, and these the, these are our arguments that we hear a lot. Um, we might play them later just so we can so hear what he has to say. But um, that's only if we have time for it. Really. Definitely. Well, and we have got a really yeah, packed yeah, show, yeah. so it's going to be what's, fun. What's what's coming up after that? Well, after that, um, I'm looking forward. This is a segment I've wanted to do for a while now. Mm. But we're going to look at bee security. Mm. So we've got Ben from Ben's Bees, mm-hmm. uh, and I've, I'll, I'll link us all on the website to all of his contacts because mm. he's a wonderful long-term professional beekeeper. Yeah. And yeah, he's going to talk to us about everything about bees. Because I think we all have this vague idea that bees are important and everyone mm-hmm. goes, yes, they should be around. But we don't know exactly why. Mm. So he's going to come on and just clear that all up. And, and bees yeah. are disappearing at an alarming rate. They are, they mm. are. And I think it's yeah something we want to pay attention to. So that's, that's going to be absolutely fun. Absolutely right. Also, in the middle of the show, we'll be um, uh, hearing about uh, the change of laws around driving and women yeah. in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so um, cool story that I got from Judith, and we'll give a bit more of an update then. But we're actually going to... There's a cool song we've got to listen to yeah. celebrating mm-hmm. the um, recent uh, right for women to drive in Saudi Arabia, which was on the 24th of June. So that's really funky. And, yeah, we'll be do- doing that. That's right. Um, the time right now is 7.07 just now. You are listening to 3CR Breakfast. Some folks know about it, some don't.
And we're here on 3CR, and we're going to have our alternative news segment right now. So that's looking at news that you don't necessarily hear in mainstream media from a different angle. So before we start, we'd just like to um, kind of talk about this really cool thing coming up with 3CR, which is out of mainstream media, I think Will and I were discussing, which is called Beyond the Bars. So, Will... That's right. Well, it's a yearly broadcast that we um, we at 3CR do, and it's, the, it's sort of a one of a kind here in Australia, um, or in the land that we call Australia. It's a um, broadcasting uh, from within prisons around Australia, and the reason why this happens during NAIDOC week is because of all of the people incarcerated here in Australia, yeah. um, 25% are Indigenous, yeah. and that's incredibly high when you consider that they make up only, like, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people together only make up... 2% of the population in Australia. So incarceration is an issue that disproportionately impacts, impacts Indigenous, yeah, Indigenous communities. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. And so that's why on Monday we heard from the folks at the Dame Phyllis, Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in Deer Park and then also Tuesday from Barwon Prison out in Lara. Today we have two Today, broadcasts. Yeah. Can you tell us what the first one is? Uh, absolutely, Will. Um, the first one is from the Fulham Correctional Centre and that will be going from 12 to 2 p.m. And then the second one is actually two to four, the London prison in um, Castlemaine. London prison, London that's right, prison, out yeah. in Castlemaine. Um, and so these are, these are basically the, the way this works out is that um, 3CR goes out to prisons um, around, uh, around Victoria mm. or around, um, yeah, around Victoria and goes into prisons and meets with prisoners and we basically talk about what's what's going on with them. We get their voices rather their than voices kind of presenting on, yeah. our own opinions about what might be happening. Yeah, no, yeah. definitely, absolutely. Um, and so that's that's part of what Beyond the Bars is. They also re- release a CD. Yeah, um, they release a CD annually, and you mm. can buy that from the station at any time. That's right. It's well yeah. worth a listen because it's just funky stuff. Yeah, you know? I'm not 100% on whether this year's CD has been released, but you can definitely purchase the, the back, back catalogue here. Definitely. And, 21 Smith Street Fitzroy, or we could probably organise some sort of um, over-the-phone payment if you called us on 94198377. That's 94198377. And the Beyond the Bars disc, the CD, um, includes music and poetry and voices of people in prison and Indigenous people in prison, especially. Um, So... Uh, yeah, definitely stick around. Keep your keep your radio tuned to eight five five AM or um, listening to us through our website three cr.org.au. Yeah, let's not. Right. It'll be it'll be a really mm. cool alternative piece of news that mm. you don't normally hear. That's right. So um, what else do we have coming up? Yeah, so I'd like to talk about words, Will, and this kind of oh, this is going to bridge its way into alternative news. But yeah. I think words, you know, words are the basis of our society. They construct the meaning, they communicate, and they kind of they can undermine. Am I wrong in thinking that you're using them right now? <laughs> I am indeed using them right now. Okay. And I love words, you know. Yeah. I'm doing a segment called Songs of Satire where sure, sure, I sure. break down the meaning behind them. I'm fascinated uh-huh. by them. Uh-huh. So I want to focus on what the big words are kind of saying in our society and kind of look at what the governments, the companies, and the media especially are using these words to construct and create and communicate. Mm. And the words I've been particularly focused on this week in particular is the Australian Department of Home Affairs, formerly known as the Department of Immigration, mm. which was changed in 2013. Now, this sounds a bit like old news, but these two different words have vastly different connotations that I kind of want to break down. So the Department of Immigration, I feel, more focuses on the individuals coming in, the the flood of migration, continuing modern Australia's kind of foundations as this multicultural society we have, you know, built on these waves of immigration. And it kind of gives the idea of accepting people of different backgrounds despite their revenues. And providing almost the boundless plane to shares that are uh, are anthem so-called champions. 
This contrasted with the Department of Health, um, Home Affairs kind of focuses instead on keeping individuals out. It's, it's more insular. It's not people flowing in, but how we stop people coming in and protect our own so-called national security. You know, these border forces, these territorial boundaries. It's a lot more focused on Australia keeping itself Australian rather than allowing to this, this natural progression of growth and globalization. And this subtle change from a door open to a door shut, while it might seem kind of innocuous, really shapes the tone of our national debates. And that's what shifts it from Australia, from Australia being a country that you know, follows UN charter and provides resources and space for people like asylum seekers and refugees in need, to one who is able to justify offshore detention and the disgraceful actions we have by our government, all in the name of national security. And it's that change of wording... Because these two heads are the same, you know, they're, they're, they're the same body, they both have the same work as the same nine to five, they both process individuals. However, it is the shift in wording that allows Australia to do that process of immigration with bigotry, discrimination and the xenophobia we see currently. And it's not as violently charged as past incarnations of racist policy in Australia, no, it's not the white Australian policy, which was easy to identify, you know, it was remarkably racist. But this is just as powerful and it's just as manipulative to Australian audiences and I think we pass up the opportunity to pay attention too often. It's, it, and it's quieter. Mm. You know, it's more innocuous, but it allows us to be just as cruel. So it's so important to recognise this difference in wording because that's the one that recently in June, and this is where it kind of segues into alternative news, saw us cutting our SRS payments. So the government's support of food, housing and basic needs to, over, uh, to asylum seekers throughout Australia was cut. And that affects up to 7,000 individuals, as estimated within reports. And it's also that difference that allows the government to then also do things like reject funding to organisations such as the Red Cross, who have been supporting refugees for 25 years now. That funding is gone. And that's also the word that allowed the government to put pressure on NGOs such as RISE, the Refugee Council and the ASRC, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, because... They're not providing governmental support to asylum seekers, and so these independent bodies are really having to bear the brunt of supporting those who basically just need a home. Mm. It's that shift of words. And it's no coincidence that the change of name to the Department of Home Affairs came in the same year that we opened up Operation Sovereign Borders. Mm. So it's a piece of news which is old, yes, perhaps, but it's a piece of news I've been focused on this week because it's just such an essential uh, change of tone in Australia's political debate and it's allowed us to turn ourselves into the kind of closed off nation that we currently are. And these words kind of tell us what our government thinks. It's not lying. It's summing it up nicely as Tony Benn says, which is a quote I really love, the way our government treats refugees is instructive because it shows how they would treat the rest of us if they thought they could get away with it. And that was just my, my I don't know, I got really angry at these words today, this week. So that was probably, yeah, my focus of this. But that was alternative news, and we'll get on now to our next segment. So, right, so.
Eager to learn new skills and open new career opportunities? AIMS Australia is a leading education provider offering government-funded courses in general English, aged care and work skills. Courses start in July, so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information. AIMS Australia is a registered training organisation, TOID 0590. AIMS Australia is a 3CR supporter. CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. And the truth is... The Smith Street Dreaming Festival is coming soon. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals. This year, we're featuring Dave Arden and Band, Alice Sky, Benny Walker, Birds, the Jury Jury Dance Group and Indigenous Hip Hop Projects with MC Layla Guruwiri from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming corner of Smith Street and Stanley Streets, Collingwood, Saturday, July the 22nd, 1pm to 5 o'clock. Smith Street Dreaming, one street, many mobs, one community. Smith Street Dreaming is a drug and alcohol free event and a 3CR supporter. Hello, you're listening to 3CR. That's right, 3CR Community Radio, this is The Breakfast Show with Will and Eidwin. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, just letting you know that today we're going to get to a top of 12, oh. um, and it's going to get down to 4 tonight, so quite cold. Shower or two developing, and there's a front of rain, I'm just looking at the radar right now, and it looks like it's coming up from uh, sort of Cape Otway area, quite a big looking front, but... Um, We'll see if it gets to us. It looks like it should, though. Um, so do prepare for rain today. Um, and, yeah, it feels like 2.3 degrees outside, according to the Bureau of Meteorology. It so. does. I love how it's got the what it actually is and mm. what it feels like. I don't like a like a machine telling me what it feels like. <laughs> you don't know what it feels like. You are pixels. <laughs> well, we've also hit um, July. So it is the 11th of July. And if you're thinking about pruning, which I am, mm. um, it's a good time to get out and pruning uh, the trees and stuff like that. Mm. So, yeah, just to let you know, July is Can a good month. Can we work in like a, like a kind of gardening update into all of our I weather I think reports? a gardening update would be fantastic. Yeah, because yeah, I, okay. I do love some gardening. So you also <laughs> like, like music, though. Yes, I do like music. So what do we have for Songs of Satire Well, today? for Songs of Satire, we have uh, Living Below the Poverty Line by The Good Boys, which was actually released in 2016, uh, but centers around youth underemployment and unemployment. So before we kind of get into the lyrics of the piece, and we will play the song in a minute, uh, the instrumentalization is really key to understanding the piece, and you can tell all the message through the music. Uh, we have the drums, the guitar, and the bass. It's so nice and traditional. Uh, the drums really kick us off with a fast kind of rapid tempo, and this creates this dramatic tension and kind of the sense of urgency, so the clock is ticking. We then have the introduction of the main singer, and 
his voice is very low, rough, and kind of scratchy, and it gives this really raw and exposed feel. And this is deliberate because it sounds like the man is doing it tough. He's doing it uh, in the back of his garage, basically. It's slightly off key, it's off pitch, and sort of kind of auto tune and perfected, like, you know, professional songs or more professional songs. It's kind of raw and it expresses real emotion. Um, at times, he literally screams out the lyrics, and that deliberately shocks or kind of takes his audience back as can I to whoops to stress the kind of extent of the bitterness coming through we also have the guitar which follows a short and repetitive riff and this is contrasted with really high bridges and this is really cool because it mimics the contrast of the mundane with the slower deeper riff which seems cyclic throughout the first part of the song then contrasted with the breaking free of society and the expression of anger by the main singer which is then mirrored in the higher faster and more desperate bridges this all kind of crescendos to a shredding of the, um, the guitar at the climax, which is always my favourite part. Um, and altogether, it's really raw and gritty, and it introduces this sense of desperation and hardship even before the words are spoken. Uh, the musical backdrop kind of tells that this song comes from a lower class or background because it doesn't really have fancy equipment or polished sound, and it is quite literally shed rock, which is a wonderful Australian tradition. Anyway... This is kind of shown throughout the message of the song as this working-class anger at the job market, which leaves youth, mostly, um, well, in this song, disenfranchised and frustrated. So the narrator explores this concept of what life is like living below the poverty line, and that's obviously the focus of the song. In fact, he repeats the same line constantly throughout the song. He adds different inflections to each repetition, which kind of gives it different meaning with each new interpretation. So he goes, um, been living below the poverty line, been living below the poverty line. And what he does is it's really funky because it kind of sounds almost conversational in tone, which kind of suggests that this overwhelming impact of poverty on his, in his life has this, kind of consumes every inch of conversation. He literally has a conversation with the audience using the same phrase, but different tones. Um, so it shows that this is a constant worry. And small things that the richer take for granted, such as paying your checks on time, are kind of subverted to be a struggle, or exposed, I should say, to be a struggle. As he tells audiences the unheard hardship that many Australians face and that we ignore because it doesn't fit our financially comfy and kind of privileged norm. It silences the struggles of those kind of doing it rough. And what I find really interesting is reassurance is no help. Um, it's demonstrated to be only empty words without action. So here's a network of friends uh, to support him, but with mates kind of telling him just to keep his chin up, he's unable to actually escape his situation. So the un anger and frustration he feels for his own financial situation only bleeds over into his personal life, and that shows how this sort of forces youth to kind of sour even the best of intentions of friends as, you know, it'll all be fine, mate, kind of thing, which kind of is warped into sounding like a dismissal rather than support. And so the element really used within the song of sat satir satirical... Um, Expression is kind of repetition and exaggeration as we build this kind of cyclic being living low the poverty line. Um, and he seems to be trapped in just being able to just get by without being able to fully support himself. And that's what kind of creates this anger. And it's not really even an exaggeration because, you know, looking it up, uh, with the Reality Bites report in 2017 uh, conducted by the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, almost one in three of Australian youth were underemployed or unemployed. Um, and that's the highest level it had been in 40 years at the time. This year alone, 714,000 youths will remain unemployed. And for those who do have a job, the study A Great Wage Ripoff, conducted by the Young Workers Centre, showed that one in five workers were actually underpaid by an average of $3 an hour, which is ridiculous, especially in the um, hospitality industry, which I don't think is new news. Um, this system of underpaid, kind of cash in hand, never-ending trainee pay, 
pay um, is what kind of is ripping off our youth workers and sustaining that cycle. And I hear it from my friends, which is ridiculous, but this inability to access work by public transport, the never-ending need for new and costing experience training, and the dwindling like 50% reduction of entry-level jobs on offer found in the same studies is what's continuing this. So, I mean, just personally for me, I've, I've already been told that our generation will never afford a house. And I think that's perhaps less to do with, you know, the fact that I haven't got out and got a good job that pays good money, like hockey says, but because we have jobs that continually and institutionally undercuts us, leaving our kind of nine-to-five, even if we work nine-to-five, unable to actually pay for a decent living. So that's what I think leads to this kind of song. It's this outburst of outrageous anger and acidity as the band kind of spits out its frustration at the situation they find themselves in. And that's going to be really seen for you in the conclusion of the song, where the frustration really ignites to the rejection of society that disempowers. So rejecting this concept of a normal life and a normal job and confronting employees and politicians alike, they, um, even when trying to fit into the system, they decide to reject it, not playing by the rules anymore. And so... They say that no one gets pleasure from such a manufactured state of hardship and they just outright reject it. So we'll play the song for you in a moment. Before I do, I just want to warn you that there are a few um, explicit words within it. So if you don't want to listen to that, please tune away for about for about three minutes or so. But otherwise, enjoy um, Living Below the Poverty Line by The Good Boys.
Yeah, I'm Brian. This is Nigel. How you going? Happy night, Oak Week. And yeah, we're just going to do a bit of solo on the DJ. Beautiful. <laughs> In July 2018, 3CR proudly presents Beyond the Bars coming to you right across NAIDOC Week. Beyond the Bars is Australia's only live prison radio broadcast giving a voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates. On Monday, July 9th, we're live from Deer Park Women's Prison from 11am. On Tuesday, July 10th, we're at Barwon Prison from 11 till 2. On Wednesday, July 11th, you can hear from the men at Fulham between 12 and 2 and then catch the men from Loddon Prison between 2 and 4. On Thursday, July 12th, we're live from Port Phillip Prison. And on Friday, our final broadcast for the week is from Marguerite Correctional Centre between 11 and 2. Make sure you tune in for Beyond the Bars 2018, Monday, July 9th through to Friday, July 13th, celebrating NAIDOC Week with the men and women inside. the cooler children and I'm fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio uh, Next up we've got a... In, uh, a, well, it's really hard to classify this because it was from a public speak. I think speech. you said a response to a question mm, uh, from right. uh, Communities in Control. Is that the yeah. seminar? Yeah, so the seminar um, is a series of speech uh, um, conversations and speeches yeah. that were given earlier this year in March and May. Um, Communities in, in Control? Communities in Control, is thank you. It's an ongoing um, uh, forum for. Yeah, it's um, an annual speakers. thing that happens an thing. Yeah. every year. Mm. And it gets, a collection of, it gets a collection of very different speakers. So we That's also right. had. Um, Triggs speaking. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I'd say it ranges mostly through the sort of the mainstream thought makers. So Definitely. Um, but you do also get voices like mm. Abe Nook, who we listened to one that, of his spoken words. That's so true. That's true. You do get a little bit of a mix, but mm. yes, it is quite a, quite a mainstream um, event. Yeah. But it yeah. does get the conversation rolling, which is cool about communities' power. Yes. Yes, that's right. And and um, so this was from Stan Grant's um, uh, response to his speech. speech. Yeah. Yeah. Stan Grant, if you don't know, is an Australian. Um, uh, well, he's a, a ABC, sorry, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. He's an ABC journalist and um, news presenter and political journalist in particular. Um, he's also Gamilaroi and Wiradjuri man, um, who was speaking from that perspective at this um, this event, um, and he gave a. Um, just what, having watched the speech, um, he gave a very impassioned defense of liberalism and, um, 
Australia and democracy. Um, and he says a lot of things that some of you may have already heard before, but if you're interested in looking it up, just go to communitiesincontrol.com.au, mm-hmm. um, which is where a lot of the speeches are held, uh, sort of kept online. Um, they're very accessible, which is great. They've got transcripts and everything. And um, this that we're going to play is, like we said earlier, a response to a question um, asked by a member of the audience. So let's have a listen in. Thank you, Stan. No um, my name is Chantelle. I'm a Barkindji woman. I guess my question for you is more... Oh, it's near my people. Um, yes, both yeah. New South Wales. Yeah, mob. I've got some Barkindji family, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, Wilcannia. We're mobbed then. That's yeah. where my family's from. True. You know Johnson's in Wilcannia? <laughs> yes. Yeah, my, my grandmother is... This is what we do. My, this, my, is, this is how you connect. My grandmother, you, know your, you know your mob when this done. My, my grandmother's a Johnson. Okay, my grandmother's um, Riley and oh. Evans's and stuff. Oh, okay. And Edwards. See? So we'll talk there after. <laughs> I guess mine's more of an internal question, I guess. Um, being a fair-skinned Aboriginal woman, most mm. of the time when I go to events, I have to publicise yeah. my identity, yeah. um, not just for myself, but for when I'm going as well. And I guess walking between two worlds, I'm actually finding it more challenging to walk in our world than I am non-Aboriginal world. That's a great question. And my question is, is like, I'm striving to be successful mm. because I know that to challenge, because I don't come from the right family, I don't come from the right skin colour, there's um, arguments about my tribal heritage and all those sort of complexities that you can't discuss with white people because Aboriginality in itself is a struggle that we're still trying to... Um, my grandmother just passed and she was the gatekeeper that stopped me from going home and it was actually my non-Indigenous father who protected me but it was my Aboriginal family that was the one that was a danger to me Um, but these are conversations you can't have outside of community but then you start to challenge them in a community and you get taxed so I guess my question is is I start to challenge my community on the idea of success as an Aboriginal woman I want to be financially successful because and have my and I'm striving to become successful as an athlete because I seen the likes of Nova Paris, yeah. Kathy Freeman. They're identifiably Aboriginal. How many identifiably famous Aboriginal well, I, people do we have that are fair-skinned? Yeah. Well, I knew, you were, I knew you were one of us as soon as I saw you there. <laughs> well, yeah, we know who we are, right? Yes. Yeah, we, we do. But this is, and this will have to be the last question because I do have a, a, a plane to catch. I'm on air again tonight. This is the, the madness of my life. But this is, this is such a brilliant question. I'm so glad I got to you because I could tell... While I was talking about some of those things that were resonating with you, I I could see that. This is, you know, the idea of identity is caught up with the politics of our age. Part of the reason that we are seeing a polarisation and a fracturing of our political order is because people are privileging identity over citizenship. Rather than building civic bonds, which is much harder... We are retreating to our own corners, and that's dangerous. That is really dangerous. William Cooper, who you mentioned, Doug Nichols, who I spoke about, the people who campaigned for 1967, the power of their struggle, Eddie Mabo, the power of that struggle was that it was building stronger foundations of our civic identity. What links us as Australians. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm Australian the same way that you're Australian or anyone else is Australian. We bring different things to this idea of what it is to be Australian. But they were about building solid platforms for that. 
I think that's what the Uluru Statement is about. I think that's what treaty is about. I think when you listen to people talk about these things, it is in terms of completing the idea of what it is to be an Australian. If we retreat into hardened identities, I know where that ends up. It ends up in conflict, and I've seen this all around the world. Look at the conflicts of our age. Sunni versus Shia. Israeli versus Palestinian. In Rwanda, the Rwandan genocide, Hutu versus Tutsi. You know, North versus South Korea. What happened in Yugoslavia, in the Balkans? What happens in in America? The American South versus the North. They're still fighting over the legacy of the Civil War. Identity rooted in a sense of historical grievance lies at the heart of all conflict in our world today. It is foundational. It is fundamental. The Indian philosopher and economist Amartya Sen talks, calls these things solitarist identities. He says solitarist identities are identities that exclude, kill. They lead to violence. What he talks about is layered identity. I am a Wiradjuri Gamaroy person. I'm a journalist. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I lived outside of Australia for 18 years. You know, I speak a little bit of Chinese. You know, well, I lived there for 10 years. I can order food and get taxis and, you know. Um, all of these things complete me. They're all, they're all a part of me. I don't privilege one part of myself over another, but in different contexts, different parts of me have greater importance. When I'm back home amongst my own family, my own people, of course, the society and the heritage and the culture and the history that I'm from is front and centre. But if I'm in New York or London or Paris, people may see me just as an Australian. Other aspects of my identity will come to the fore. When I'm at work, I'm a journalist and there are aspects of an identity as a professional that will come to the fore. It doesn't mean that one cancels another out. It means that they round out the idea of you. They add layers to who you are. And I think this goes to your fundamental question, is that when you are an Aboriginal person and you don't conform to particular stereotypes, when you are not identifiably black, when you are successful so you're not disadvantaged, you know, when you don't meet those general preconceptions about what it is to be Aboriginal, the onus is on you somehow then to prove who you are. The Australian Law Reform Commission counts 64 different definitions of what it is to be Aboriginal over Australia's history. 64 different times we've had different labels applied to us. In the last census, I had to tick the box, as you were asked to tick as well, saying, are you Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? didn't ask whether I was Baradjuri or Gamalroy. It didn't ask. No other Australian had to do that. We have to do that. And if I tick that box, how can that box contain all of the layers of my identity? And identity is not a foundation for justice. Identity is your personal choice. It's, it's the many contradictions and distinctions in your own life. Ideas of justice need to be built on a neutrality and foundations of universal ideas of justice that all of us, irrespective of our political, of our particular ethnic backgrounds, can actually be a part of. But I know what you're saying 
is that the discussion within our communities is often more difficult than the discussion that I can have with all of you today. Because when you come from a people who have experienced the history that we've experienced, there is a wariness, there is a suspicion. People are suspicious of you if you're too successful. People wonder about you if you're too light-skinned. You know, oh, so you're only identifying as Aboriginal now, are you? Because that suits you now. You know, that is, in its own way, go back to the very first question I got today, that's a colonised mind. Amongst our own people, those people that try to question your identity or your validity as an Aboriginal person are expressing the same view as the coloniser who told us that, you know, we were different, we were lesser because we were Aboriginal, because we were black. If we use that against each other, that is a colonised mind. You know, I watched the, the, the royal wedding last week with my wife and it was a really interesting sort of moment, actually. Because I was sitting there and there was me, my wife, who's non-Indigenous, her mother, whose long-time partner is a New Zealand Maori, her sister was out from Hawaii, who's married to a native Hawaiian. My son was there. We were, so here we were, all mixed, all part of each other, family, watching Meghan Markle with a black mother and a white father marrying Prince Harry. And I thought, what is this notion and this power that we give to the idea of race? And all anyone could talk about was Meghan Markle being mixed race. Why is she seen as mixed race and no one else there? You know, DNA will tell you that we all share each other's DNA. We are all related to each other in various ways. There is no different species of human being. We are just humans, homo sapiens. So when you deconstruct it and you tear all those things away, what are you left with? You're left with the idea of race as a social construct. And it's a social construct that has been used against people. It's been used to identify you as different and other. And on the basis of that identification, you will then be segregated or subjugated. It has been used to justify colonialism, invasion, holocaust, genocide, all of the things that we've seen in our world on the basis of a fictitious, unscientific idea of race. So I think for our own people as well, if we don't stop using the discourse of race, if we don't start talking about universal ideas of justice, if we don't open up ideas of identity to involve and encapsulate all the layers of who we are, all the contradictions of who we are, that you can walk through the world as a Barkindji woman, you can also walk through the world as someone who is, has European heritage, you're a successful person, you're an athlete, all of those things are part of who you are. And if people try to limit us, if people try to put their own definitions of who you are on us, they are buying into that same defunct, uh, unscientific, you know, colonised concepts of race that are completely outdated and redundant. And I think that's where we need to be focusing. So I'm glad you asked that question. It's a good question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. And that was Stan Grant speaking at an event earlier this year, Communities in Control, uh, which is a yearly forum that uh, invites a number of speakers to speak on a range, wide-ranging number of topics. And that was um, 
from a speech that Stan Grant gave earlier this year in response to a question from the audience. You are listening... To 3CR, yeah. That's right, to Wednesday um, Breakfast. Just reminding people that the will be going uh, Beyond the Bars will be on today. So that will be from 12 to 2 up mm-hmm. in uh, near Sale in the, correction, uh, the Fulham Correctional Centre. That's right. And at 2 to 4 at the Loddon Prison in Castle, Maine. Mm. Um, just a correction with what we said before. The CD that does come out yearly is a compilation of the broadcast highlights. So 2018's will be coming out a little bit later. However, if you're interested, you can always get 2017's, 2016's, and all the years you've missed out on. So CDs are also actually free and can be picked up from the station. So feel free to come on down. Uh, we're in Smith Street in Fitzroy. That's right, 21, 21 Smith, Smith Street, Street in Fitzroy. So uh, you can catch the the 86 or the 108. 106, 109, 109. Uh, the 86, <laughs> the 12. There's so many ways of getting here. Oh, we're, so many ways. We're in the epicenter of the city. This is we really are. Beautiful place. Um, it's a beautiful part of the city, um, so head on down um, and pick up one of those great CDs beyond the bars. Talking about Fitzroy, Will, weren't you reading something that was saying Fitzroy was like the first suburb? It was the first gazetted suburb, gazetted of, suburb. Um, of Melbourne and... Um, yeah, it's just something that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, um, no, very. That it's, uh, you know, such a, a thriving hub of Aboriginal culture now, um, Aboriginal people who have a strong presence here in Fitzroy. And um, it just also happens to be the first gazetted suburb of Melbourne. I'm not going to make a big thing about it, though, because I don't really <laughs> no. know much more than that. No, but I have to say, um, yeah. one thing that I, the first thing I heard when I came to the station is someone would said, uh, Fitzroy is the crash landing place of everything and everyone. Mm. You have from the richest to the poorest, just every single race, yeah. every single background. It's fantastic. Increasingly the richest, though. So many fancy apartments so many going on. Yeah. Mm, mm. yeah, and we'll definitely speak on that more in the future. That's something that I really care about. So, um, But what are, we, what are we talking about now? Well, we're actually going to go into a little segment uh, emailed to me by Judith, I think unconsciously, but she sent us... Uh, Celebrating the 24th of June, which was the day that women in Saudi Arabia got their driver's license mm. and were actually fully allowed to drive. Yeah. So the protests have been going on since the 1990s. Mm. Uh, there's been a huge movement. And Saudi Arabia is definitely not the world's leader in women's rights. Uh, it's not, no. a huge breacher of uh, the Convention of the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, mm. which actually is a party state too, mm. but it still has huge amounts of cultural problems going on with mm. um, male guardianship and stu- uh, issues such as yeah, that. Yeah, so guardianship where women need um, their male guardians To basically to access do... a lot of things, healthcare, yeah. education, yeah. Um, leaving, the tra- leaving the country, travel, yeah. which obviously... Yeah is quite an impediment. Uh, women of, it's very hard for women to be in society. Yeah, mm. there's, there's a lot of issues, and male guardianship really does suffocate a lot of women's autonomy. Mm. So the fact that um, they're able to drive now is a wonderful revolution in itself. And, yeah. But that being said, a lot of people have cre- um, criticised it as a, um, as a sort of smokescreen to distract from the ongoing oppression of women in Saudi Arabia. It, it's, very a, it's, it's very important, though, that it is... A freedom, um, but it's mm. not a freedom that was given by the um, the Saudi Arabian um, government. It was one that was won by um, won by the women um, yeah. activists in Saudi Arabia. And that's a really to acknowledge them. that's a really important thing is to contextualize mm. this within this is one step within the movement. So mm. uh, I think an example that struck me was um, a few years uh, a year ago there were 38 women elected to the parliament in Saudi Arabia. Oh, wow. However, mm. they were not able to join the men. They had to um, conference them over video stream. Uh, in a different room, and that was 38 out of a body that exceeded a 1,000 members. So it's that sort of contextualization of this is a wonderful step forward, and the women have won this right, which is fantastic, but it is within this deeply um, oppressive 
kind of background. Mm, so I think that's, that's a really right. that's a really important thing to remember. Mm. But for the song Judith has uh, sent us, it is a uh, cover of the Beatles song uh, "To Ride My Car," to drive my car, and it was arranged by Palestinian cellist Nassim Alatrash, and features the vocals of Syrian singer Nano Reyes. So we're going to play it for you now, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I know it's a lovely little email from Judith, and it's a wonderful cause to celebrate. are selling kafir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. 
all profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And that was the cover of the Beatles song, Drive My Car, by Syrian singer Nano Reyes. Now, next up, we've actually got an interview with Ben, who is a long-term professional beekeeper and is on the phone today to kind of talk about all things bee-related. So we're going to talk a little bit about bee security. And good morning, Ben. Good morning, Ivan. Good morning, Will. Wonderful. Okay. Well, it's lovely to have you on air. Thank you very much for getting up um, early this morning, and I'm very sorry for sending confusing times. But you're here now, so it's all good. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, first off, if you could just let us know kind of why are bees so important to the environment? Because we hear this a lot, you know, we need to protect the bees, but we don't hear exactly why. And I think it's, yeah, why, why, what, are they, what do they contribute to the ecosystem and to uh, society, I suppose? Yes, definitely. The bees are so incredibly important um, for many, many different aspects. But probably the biggest is, um, is pollination. Um, one in every three mouthfuls of food that we eat has been pollinated by a bee. Now, that's about 70% of the crops that we eat. So bees' pollination are so incredibly important. Obviously, they produce a lot of things, um, things like, obviously, we can eat pollen, uh, propolis, beeswax, um, and obviously honey. We all love honey. Mm, yes. Most of the <laughs> No, you'd be crazy to not like honey. Um, so, yeah, from making our flowers grow to kind of pollinating our fields, I suppose this is such an important thing. Uh, and we did see the kind of collapse of, um, I suppose, culture in China when uh, their bee, pop- bee population uh, died, and they had to actually, was it, uh, self-pollinate uh, uh, a lot of um, their environment, stuff like that? Yeah, that's, that's right. You know, in, in China, obviously, there's um, terrible bad pollution, but um, the bees just can't survive. There's just too much pollution, too many chemicals, too many pesticides, and so a lot of the crops have got to hand-pollinate. So... Um, I don't know how can anyone could be um, so patient to do that because yeah. you know, if you think about it, a bee does it for free. You know, a, a colony of bees can pollinate um, you know a million flowers in in one day, um, and that's one big big colony oh. of bees. So they do it for free. Yeah, they do it for free, and they've got a huge radius just from um, from my limited bee knowledge that they go from the hive and they they how far can they go and how far of like area do they cover? Yeah, that. that's interesting, Edmund. So they'll, they'll travel pretty far. Um, bees will travel up to 5 kilometres um, in their foraging radius from their, their hives. But generally, they're smart little critters. You know, I mean, they want mm-hmm. to travel pretty close. So usually that 500 metres radius around the hive is what they prefer. Uh, as you imagine, they get 10 trips in as, as opposed to doing a, a big, long trip. But 5 kilometres is pretty... Pretty long distance for something that weighs, you know, one tenth of a gram. <laughs> that is a huge difference, and I think efficiency really is the words of the bees. Um, but kind of then moving on, I suppose, uh, if you could give us an idea of what the current threats are then to bee security and populations, kind of uh, within Australia. Yes, yeah, definitely. So with um, with bees, obviously they're under so much threat around the world, um, you know, pesticides and, and pollution and that sort of thing. But one of the biggest ones is this little mite called varroa. It's mm. called the Varroa Destructor, which is kind of like a bee flea. Now, Australia is the only continent not to have it. Um, now, it absolutely decimates hives. So, basically, think of it as like a flea to a bee. Now, the size of it from, uh, to a bee is, would be like us having a parasite the size of a basketball. 
on it. Wow. Um, and this parasite transmits viruses, transmits diseases, and it sucks the blood from the bees, which is the um, hemolymph. Now, as I said, Australia, we're the only continent I can have it. I just come back from Europe. I was uh, about a month ago, I was working in uh, Europe and the UK, and they've got it. And on average, uh, between 30 to 70% of their hives will die over winter. And the biggest cause of this is this varroa mite. Yeah. Now, we don't have them in Australia, uh, which we're lucky because we have excellent biosecurity. But um, a week and a half ago, there was an incursion in Melbourne where a colony of, um, of bees were on a shipping container and they, uh, they were destroyed and they detected to have this mite. So this big, uh, there's a um, two-kilometre um, zone around Port Melbourne and all the beekeepers, um, have been, their hives have been checked and uh, I'm pretty certain it's been contained because the one good thing that was on our side was the weather. It was cold weather, so bees weren't foraging, they weren't moving. So, um, But it would be a massive collapse because, you know, another statistic in Australia... It's worth, bees are worth over $6 billion a year in Australia. Just a small question. Uh, has, have the varroa mite reached New Zealand and, like, uh, neighbouring yes. states? Yes, yeah. Every, so, so it's absolutely everywhere. There's a couple of islands. Um, the varroa's not on Fiji. Um, just out in the UK, the Isle of Man, is, there's no varroa mite there, but every continent does have it. Um, New Zealand has had varroa mite for the last, I think, almost 20 years now. Yeah, and, and um, mm. yeah, it's a scary prospect because it is it is in some ways inevitable because Australia, whilst it, it, we we have such a brilliant, as you said, biosecurity and kind of uh, ability to stop these coming in, but it is so inevitable with the spread of the varroa mite around the world. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So because what can happen is, it, you know, it maybe a year, it could be a hundred years, but it's going to happen. Um, there was an incursion. Well, there's been a few more in the north in in Queensland, Townsville, um, Darwin. There's been incursions, but there's been other mites because there's one called Varroa jacobsoni, and that's a host on the Asian honeybee. Ah, oh, so yeah. That's a host where, but this is the Varroa destructor. Is that's the real nasty one? That's what decimates hives. That's the one we need to focus on. Oh, um, definitely. Also heard a little bit of weird stuff about um, the theft of uh, people stealing hives and, su- and stuff like that. I'm um, also in New Zealand. But is that a, is that actual uh, concern? Because we've been hearing really odd cases of people stealing hives and then, of course, because they lack experience, killing them off uh, because yeah. they extract out the honey and then just leave it. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's right. It's, it's really, it's becoming because of the popularity of bees. And, and a beehive costs a fair amount of money. You know, they're looking, you know, a standard sort of box around the five to $600 mark for a mm. box of bees. So, and they're relatively easily pinched. Now, touch wood, I haven't had any stolen, but in the last six months I've had two friends with um, hives stolen. It's ridiculous. So they, it, it, does, it does happen, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's, and it's almost unbelievable because you'd think who would want to steal a hive, um, especially because they, they kill the bee populations because they just don't know what they're doing, which is oh, that, that's, horrifying. That's exactly. Yeah, that's, that's right. And especially, as you mentioned, uh, I'd went in New Zealand. The, mm. you know, bees just get stolen all the time. It's uh, absolutely rife over there. So um, just because they're worth so much money, particularly because of that whole um, Manuka madness. Yeah, the Manuka madness. <laughs> it's a wonderful yeah. way of putting it, yeah. Yes. So I suppose um, you've talked a lot about pesticides, and I, I wanted to kind of draw attention to the fact that uh, recently uh, the EU actually banned a lot of pesticides that were harming bee populations. And uh, you said that you were actually in Europe at that time. Um, what was yeah. the buzz around that? Yes, yeah. So that was a month ago. So I was um, I was over there for I call it a working holiday. So um, just the power of social media. I was just um, 
just went through the UK. I was in Ireland, and I just basically put it out there. I said, you know, I'm a beekeeper. I don't care if you've got two hives or you've got 2,000. You know, I'd love to meet you. you know, I'd love to see what you're doing. So I travelled around and uh, was going through France at the time, actually. I was in the south of France, um, near, near Grasse. And, um, yeah, it sort of come, uh, there was a big sort of hype there. And it basically the ban of an, a pesticide, which is called a neonicotinoid. Mm. You know, it's a really um, bad chemical because it's systemic. Right. So what happens is a... a, a the, the plant or so forth is treated, and any insect that lands on the leaf on the stem will die. That's how. That's how. That's how. And, and that's that goes for can be months. You know what I mean for this uh, systemic chemical neonicotinoid to be in the actual plant. So you can imagine how bad that is. So um. So the whole of EU banned it. Yeah. Uh, this push uh, here in Australia to uh, to ban it. Um, it's been linked with uh, CCD, which is Colony Collapse Disorder in America. Um, I believe in some states in America, I think they've um, put a ban on it or, or a uh, restricted use. Uh, it is, yeah, really nasty, nasty chemical. So, yeah, looking at that, what we can do in national change with, like, this this change in policy, a, a ban on these pesticides would be a wonderful thing to see because, as you said, it's just polluting our atmosphere and killing off our bee populations and... Not very cool. But um, what can we do also, I suppose, on national level and then more on a local level to kind of protect bees? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yes, yeah. You know, the best thing um, to, to look after the bees is, is really simple. You know what I mean? If you obviously don't want to keep bees because you might be scared, you might be allergic or you don't have time or, or whatever it is, but, you know, the best thing to do is actually plant lots of flowers. Mm, yes. So plant flowers, you know, and, and things like people ask me what type of flowers, but herbaceous flowers, you know, all your... Um, Rosemary, basil, thyme, mint. You know, the bees absolutely love them. You know, lavender. You know, some of these sort of um, European type uh, flowers. Um, yeah, bees love them. So that's the best thing you can do. Um, probably another thing is too is, um, is supporting local beekeepers. So no matter where you are, you know, go see a local beekeeper and buy the honey from them. Yeah. Don't buy it from the supermarket because you know you've got that connection with that beekeeper. That's the first thing. And the second thing is you know what you're getting. And third thing is you're going to get a pure natural product, so and that's important. So, you know, supporting the bees, support the beekeepers. Yeah, no, definitely. I I always um I always grew up with uh, homemade honey sort of stuff, and it amazed me when I first tried um supermarket honey just how sweet, artificially sweet it is. Uh, it, it's quite amazing how we we we've branded this big product of honey to you know on, on the on the shop in the shops like Coles and Woolworths, and it's so different from the real product. It's so removed from that. And you know, I had uh, I had one friend have the honey, uh, my homemade honey, and they were kind of like, "Oh, this isn't this isn't honey," because they were so used to the over sugaring, overproduced sort of stuff. It, it is, yeah, that's that's right. And the other stuff too is um, the other thing is too. Sorry, is the the honey in supermarkets. What they do is they heat treat it. So heat treat it. So if you notice, the honey in supermarkets is always runny. So yeah. you know, if you get honey from a beekeeper, it all crystallises, and that's a na- it doesn't mean it's gone off. A completely natural process. Um, yeah, process. You know, what I mean, so it's just a case of to reconstitute it. Um, you know, to make it a little bit more runny, just put into warm water, not hot water, warm water, and that keeps all the good enzymes and the and the um, the pollens and all the good stuff, which is why honey is so nutritious. Yeah, and I suppose uh, just finishing up with some stuff. Uh, Talking about what Australia does do on a national level, it's, it's fantastic that we do have such a tight security when it comes to importing, you know, goods. And, for example, we were able to catch the varroa mite before it entered Australia. But also, I think, uh, celebrating the fact that we have such a, 
a good regulation of beehives from the sounds of it. You know, you have to register your 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 hive if you have one, and then you have to do routine uh, routinely checkups on them. Like, um, oh, my favorite is the sugar shake, which refers to the varroa mite. Uh, could you give us like yeah. a little bit of information around that? Because I think that's something. Yes, yeah, definitely. So, so as far as keeping bees, you know, anyone interested, it's really straightforward. You know, someone asked me how how long will it take to look after bees, and I sort of say, you know, six to eight hours a year. Um, so they're quite, you know, they look after themselves, but uh, legally speaking, through the APRI Code of Conduct, uh, what we need to do is inspect the hive twice um, twice a year minimum, um, but ideally I recommend sort of six, six eight times per year, um, and that's obviously checking for pests and diseases. But this, that sugar shake is interesting. What you do is you get um, some bees, uh, you put them in like a little container that's got some mesh on the outside, and you put some icing sugar, and you give them a gentle shake, uh, and what happens is the the bees get coated in the sugar, but it knocks the varroa mite off. So it's a, it's a way of um, detecting varroa mite. So um, the Biosecurity and, and Agriculture Australia, the DPI, have um, sent a lot of these out to to beekeepers to actually do this uh, sort of twice a year, just to make sure that you know, no mites have come in. Yeah, and I love it. It seems so simple, but so effective. So I guess. Yes, it is. The main message of this is go out and plant some flowers and support your, uh, get in touch with your local beekeepers and yeah, keep attuned to the fact that bees are out there in Australia and they should be celebrated and protected. Oh yes, most definitely. And uh, and don't be scared of bees. You know, I mean, if you see some bees, um, you know, if they're just foraging on a plant, um, yeah, they're just doing their thing. No need to be scared. They're, they're not going to attack. And uh, and also, um, yeah, just um, yeah. Get in touch with a beekeeper, the local beekeeper, buy your honey and um, and support local. And that goes for any food for that matter. Yeah, no, indeed. Thank you so much. And on that point, we will wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Um, I really loved our talk on bees. Thanks, Edmund. Really appreciate the call. Thank you so much. No problem. And that was Ben, who is a long-term professional beekeeper. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesday Breakfast. I often question whether I'm a good historian or not because I'm often not very interested in the truth of things, the historicity of things, but I'm much more interested in what they mean to a particular culture at particular times. So Anzac Day serves this massive mythological function. It's a myth in that it gives us meaning and gives us identity. It has a sort of explanatory function um, and the truth of that is kind of irrelevant to anybody who's going to a dawn service or who's protesting a dawn service, if you like. But I got, it got me thinking about other myths. What should we celebrate? Dr. Tim Jones on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, first Wednesday of the month. Each year, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival curates world-class, local and international features direct from some of the hottest, most prestigious documentary film festivals in the world, like Cannes, Doc New York City, South by Southwest and Sundance. This year, opening night is on Friday the 6th of July at 7pm at Cinema Nova Carlton. The festival kicks off with Film Worker, the incredible true story of Stanley Kubrick's mysterious assistant. For more details, go to mdff.org.au. See you there. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Hello, it's Fiona Scott Norman here, and I would just like to say congratulations. You are doing something very important right now, and you want to know what it is? You are listening to 3CR, Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important, community is important, community radio is very, very important, and you are a winner. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio Wednesday Breakfast, and next up we're going to hear a conversation with Pat Anderson, who's an Alyawara woman and health advocate and um, part of the Lowitcher Institute. And take it away. So we're here with the pioneering woman in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health research and advocacy, Ms Pat Anderson, to talk about leadership and the NAIDOC team this year because of her, we can... So because of you, I can do the things that I want to do in my life. Who were the women in your life? It was all those women at prep camp that actually grew up at Carlin Compound with my mother. And as young women, they came also at mothers to prep camp. This is where they put us in those days. There were several camps in Darwin, but I grew up in one called prep camp. And all the women there were there, all the mothers, and in the living we really lived really close to each other and knew everybody, all of our business. We all knew each other's business. Um, I was surrounded by these really um, strong um, women. And it's only as I've gotten older that I've realised all these women that I called auntie and their husband's uncle, how influential they were on my life. And there were some, they were all these amazing characters doing all sorts of fantastic things. And uh, I just feel so privileged to have known and grown up um, as a young child, I'm a young woman really, um, at prep camp with, with all of those women. I mean, there was. One that sticks out was um, Annie Judy uh, at the time, which was very unusual. She rode a push bike and she wore shorts. And she used to come down and um, help out with the family, the Armat family down the road. And we still were thinking, we said, Annie Judy, Annie Judy's coming, Annie Judy. And we thought she was pretty crashed. Like, we didn't know anybody who wore shorts and uh, rode a bike. Um, so she was just one, um, one of the standouts just by who she was. And she seemed so. Um, self-contained and uh, uh, I remember being impressed I don't know why I was impressed but I was she didn't seem to have any family or any kids she was just only duty and she worked she seemed like an independent type of woman I think I would use that language now and I was pretty impressed with that that she was self-sufficient, self-contained and could come and go and she earned her own money I was pretty impressed with that so there was all these women that impressed me and that not only were they um, self-contained these women, they had big families a lot of them uh, functioning families, but they were um, some of them were so beautiful as well. I mean, there was a couple of women that looked. I don't know, probably the audience won't even know this film actress, but they look they like Ava Gardner. You know, they're all so beautiful. They're beautiful inside and really strong, um, strong women. So I feel really privileged and really lucky to have grown up in a whole house 
not only a household of women, I've got five sisters, but there are also these women friends of my mother, including my mother, of course, who was like the kingpin of all, the queen bee of all these activities in, in our household anyhow. So uh, I'm lucky that I knew all these women I grew up with and that uh, they still affect me today. I can still see Aunty Judy on her push bike and her, and her brown linen shorts and white shirt. <laughs> In particular, your career, would you say the shoulders that you stood on, like because of them, you can and have done the things that you've done? Mm. Look, it's all of those women, um, as I said earlier, and it's only as I get older that I realise how important they are in my life. But I think, you know, in the last um, 20 years, the woman that's um, I've most, or not most, that I've admired considerably is Loa Jo Donoghue because we worked closely together for the last 20 years. She was the first um, chairperson of the pre-seeder organisations of the Lowell Institute, the CRCs. Lower came uh, not long after um, ATSIC had wound, been wound up by the government. We approached Lower to be um, the first chairperson of the first CRC for Aboriginal and Tropical Health in Darwin. And she, I learned a lot from her. Um, I have to say she's a consummate chair she can read a room like I haven't seen anybody else read a room like Lower can and she had all these rules for herself in terms of chairing so that was just one aspect of who she is I mean it's all the things that she's done in her life including I was so impressed when I realised she'd been a young nurse working in India in the Assam region I thought that was really great I don't know any other Aboriginal nurses that gone you know to India to work so she's full of all these um Surprises, I think, as well as all the hard work um, that she's done. I think she's an example for the younger women you were talking about earlier about what you can learn. She is a hard grafter. She really, you know, she's whatever she's taken on, she's done the hard yard, she's done the work, she's been principled, she's been strong and solid and what have you. So she's a really good um, example, um, in, certainly in the last 20 years. But there's a whole host of younger women coming up who are impressive um, I mean I watched um, Marcia Langton um, come to the forefront I knew her she was a, a student a long time ago now it seems and of course I think and there's a whole lot raft of younger women now on the on the national scene up some are up and coming uh, at the moment and very topical because of the constitutional uh, discussions that we've been having the constitutional lawyer Meg, Professor Megan Davis is really um, brilliant in that, uh, in that area and there are others following in her footsteps as well Tila Reed is women young women all over the country who I'm I'm really happy that I can look behind and I see them all there so I'm happy that, you know there's plenty of women and women like yourself who have chosen a whole other field there's women young women Aboriginal Torres and women all over the country and I think they're all fantastic and I'm very proud of all the work that they do I think only as I've gotten older have I realised how important in terms of where I get this strong sense of, um, of justice and uh, a really strong sense of right and wrong. I mean, I know small children do have a sense of right and wrong, but it was fostered by uh, my parents and all of these other women around because, you know, it was pretty difficult growing up, you know, in the, in the 50s. Australia was a different place um, than it is now. So... This sense of what was right and what was wrong was really strong, and because we were feeling the full impact of us, of it in uh, in Prapkip and the other camps um, around Darwin, so we experienced 
injustice and racism almost every day. Not that racism has gone away. I mean, still, it's a big issue um, for Australia uh, today, even though. So, but in the in the 50s, it was you know it was like it is now. It was pretty much in your face and pretty much on a daily basis. And we used to listen um, to to the radio about people and Aboriginal people in the other states doing things and other Torres Strait Island people coming because a lot of the men used to come worked on the railway they would come through Cap Camp and we knew lots of families and what have you so we had that connection but also you know we heard them um, on the radio when they set up the um, Advancement League in Victoria in Melbourne and so there were all these sorts of things happening which we used to hear on the radio so and everyone had an opinion about it and if there were any meetings we'd all sort of go all us kids would go as well and sit on the blankets till we all fell asleep and so we were hearing this stuff because it was very much part um, of everyday life so um, once again I feel uh, very proud to um, be, have been part of that in a really small way. What sort of barriers though like through your careers that you face that maybe we should be wary of or something? <laughs> yeah mm. look um, can I say there's also uh, heaps and heaps of um, younger men mm. I think some of our young men are really really impressive I just sort of like to say that we're in safe hands with both our young women and also our young men who are different to the men of my um, generation as much as I love them these younger men seem a little bit more rounded <laughs> barriers um, well you know don't forget I've been around um, a long time and a lot of the barriers that women felt you know there's all this non-Aboriginal people call it you know the glass ceiling and um, there was also um, a little bit of that um, a little bit of uh, we had to be we felt that we had to be um, considerate um, of our male of our, of our brothers uh, who were working in the in the in the same um, space and um, often there were tensions um, in that area but um, you know with time and what have you and the changes now a lot of those um, men have become really really good mates but there was a time when um, it was, there, were, there were lots of lots of um, challenges. So were there the challenges within, and also the challenges without. I mean, there was still there's constant. The big thing in this country, of course, is racism, which I think overbounds um, sexism in our case because we had a double whammy. Not only were we women, but there was we, you know that with all the things surrounding that and the barriers were there that were there. There was also the barrier which remains today, and is a big. I think mean, it's a big issue for us is the extent and effect of racism. What has helped you achieve everything that you have achieved? What's helped? I think having, and I don't know where this comes from, I think only was having that strong, strong sense of justice that my parents um, gave um, to us to us all and I feel it quite strongly um, I also had a really strong and I have rather a really strong sense of self so um, I kind of was bullish enough not to take no for an answer and just uh, push ahead uh, because when I was young I thought I was right and knew everything like well, you know most young people 
But it has um, been, an a- been an enabler. And along the way, I've learned to um, finesse um, that kind of um, almost aggressive um, energy uh, too. So I've, I've learned to use that in a way to manipulate, massage whatever is happening in situations and what have you to get what I've decided that I want mm. out of this. So I don't know where those things come from, this sense of strong sense of self. I really don't understand that. But I am very conscious of it and I always have been since I was small. But how, I don't know. So that's been an enabler. That's a hard question to answer. But I think this strong conviction about who I was has been a big, huge help to me. And what are the markers of success for an individual and also for a community? Achieve what you set out um, to do. Uh, success for us, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, often doesn't mean the same as it does for uh, non-Indigenous uh, people. So success can be all those kids in that family are going to school on a regular basis, for example, mm-hmm. and that they're being cared for enough so as when they go to school, they actually can pay attention. Small thing, profound impact for that particular family and, for, of course, for that community. As a young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman, what advice would you give to me about leadership? Go to school. Don't leave school early. Go as far as you can. Learn as much as you can at school in formal education. And then once you decide what you think you'd like to do, might not be the end decision, but once you decide, give yourself over to it. Learn as much as you can about it. Be the best you can when you talk about it when you're talking at any function or at any conference or anything, you need to know your subject matter. So don't think that you can wing it. So do the hard yards. There's no easy way forward. You have to do You have to do the work. And if you do that and you're dedicated and you're committed and you believe in what you're doing, you're going to be a huge success. So don't forget who you are. Always remember where you come from, who your family is and what your beginnings are. I reckon that's a recipe for success. So looking into the future, because of your weekend, what would you like us to do? You know, I've spent a lifetime um, working um, in the space as part of the struggle. Um, and I've sat, like a lot of Aboriginal people around the country, I've sat on committees, I've changed the national agenda, um, often compromised myself, thinking that I could get an outcome from there. So I've spent a whole life since I was 15 working in this space. Now, we Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, we have done absolutely everything and fundamentally there's been no structural reform. The system has to change. So there has to be a profound change in how the government of the day and the non-Indigenous population of Australia relates to us. There has to be a new relationship. And I hope in my lifetime that I will see constitutional change, structural reform, which will give us a proper place in the fabric of this wonderful country, which, in fact, we are the custodians of. This is our place. And we, I feel like, often... Despite all our efforts and all the wonderful successes in contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander society, we are still at prep camp on the fringes. 
that's got to stop. That's the big, the big task for us all over this next um, little while. So until we get proper structural reform, I just think we're just going to keep going round and round in circles and the government of the day, whatever political persuasion, is going to tell us that they know better than us and this is what we're going to do now. That has to stop. That has to stop and there has to be a new relationship and some settlement negotiated between us, us mob, this is our country, this is our place, this continent belongs to us. We are the custodians of it with the people who came after us. Yeah, and that was... And that was a conversation with Pat Anderson, Alyarora woman and health advocate and uh, part of the Lowitcher Institute and um, also chairperson of the Lowitcher Institute. Yeah, and speaking of that fantastic little bit, um, uh, it is NADOC week for those who have been living on a rock and don't know, uh, and there will be lots of events going on. You can actually find uh, the events going on at their website, which is NADOC, so that's www.nadoc, which is N-A-I-D-O-C dot org dot A-U slash get involved forward slash 2018 theme. Now, that was garbled, so it will be up on our website so you can access it. But basically, if you just Google NADOC, there's a lot of different activities all around Victoria and Australia that you can get part of. And the theme this year is especially cool because it is Because of Her We Can. So it's really celebrating um, Indigenous and uh, Torres Strait Islander women, which is fantastic. That's right. Now, remember, we've got Beyond the Bars coming up today from 12 p.m. through to 4 p.m. broadcasting from Fulham Correctional Centre near Sale and Loddon Prison near Castle, Maine, and that's four hours of prison broadcast, so it's definitely worth tuning into. Um, today we heard about bees. Yeah, we did hear about bees. We also broke down um, youth, underemployment and unemployment in songs of satire. That's right. And we had some pre-records from Stan Grant uh, speaking about his um, intersecting ad- identities as, an, uh, as a um, Gamilaro man, and also mm. we heard from... Uh, Lowitcher Institute as well. I hope you've enjoyed. It's been a really lovely show. We've enjoyed ourselves, so I hope you have. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. And Will, are we going out in a song? That's right. We're closing out with a song called Nora Marla, or Love Song, by Kadajala Kiridara. They are a band, all female um, band coming out of Northern Territory, and um, really great music. Just listen in. Sacred. It is that fruit that helped create it. This is the story of being Aboriginal woman of the sandhood.